Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage. So the Morrison government has finally unveiled its COVID-safe contact tracing app, and for the most part, Australians have embraced it with possibly millions enabling the facility on their smartphones. Crucially, the opposition is on board, as is the ACTU. Labor's health spokesman Chris Bowen stated that he and his family had immediately downloaded the app and that as far as he knew, it was only some coalition MPs, mainly nationals, who were resisting. The controversy surrounding the app centres on the perceived risk of the information being misused by governments and police to impinge on fundamental rights of movement, association and privacy. Health Minister Greg Hunt, who's been wheeled out to spruik the case rather than the gaff-prone Stuart Robert, says it's rock solid. Not even a court order can penetrate its triple-thick security protection, he says. But two other questions arise, and they're both pretty fundamental. Is there any danger of the government's database being hacked? Let's be honest, its record here is hardly spotless. And more basic again, will the information gathered even work in detecting and controlling community spread? Still, anyone who's seen the results of COVID-19 up close will probably say the moral case for doing whatever you can as an individual to protect the community and save lives is worth trying. This is just the latest novel policy question in a cavalcade of fascinating dilemmas and conundrums brought up by the 2020 pandemic. Joining me to talk through these issues and other questions are my weekly partner, the political scientist Dr Maria Teflaga from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Hi there, Maria. Hello. Hi, everyone. Also with us is Professor Mark Evans, who is the Director of the Democracy 2025 Project at the Museum of Australian Democracy. Welcome back, Mark. Hi there. Good afternoon. And it's also a warm welcome back to Anne McNaughton, who is a legal scholar and is currently the Executive Director of the ANU's Centre for European Studies. Hi there, Anne. Hi there, Mark. Hello, everyone. Now, Mark, perhaps we'll start with you. We know trust is in free fall in Western democracies. That's uh, something we've talked about on this podcast, and it's very well documented around the world. But we're seeing some sort of, I guess, some sort of comeback at the moment. Um, we're seeing leaders, those who aren't completely botching their response, that is, we're seeing those leaders in many countries getting votes of confidence. I guess this is a function of politics being dialed down and policy being dialed up or problem solving. Is there anything we can take from this? I mean, this is a sort of an optimistic moment, isn't it, in terms of uh, what we might be able to you know, see as possible in democracies? <laughs> Well, um, political scientists are calling this the the rally around the the flag phenomenon. Um, so, as you said, you know Morrison is on sixty eight percent in terms of his personal approval rating, which is the highest since Kevin Rudd in in two thousand and eight. But when we look at this globally, most leaders have got a spike, even those that haven't handled the virus particularly well, particularly well, including Prime Minister Johnson in the UK. I mean, even Trump is on a pretty even keel in terms of his approval rating. Um, the key stat for me actually is party preferred. So if you look at party preferred, you have the coalition and Labour neck and neck, which shows you that this is more more of a rally around the flag than than a belief that um, the coalition that um, that Morrison has all the answers to the problems that we're facing. Also, if you look at Twitter analysis. 
Brendan Murphy, the chief scientist, is way out in front of, of politicians as the most trusted source of information about coronavirus. The other thing I would say is that clearly there's been a change of style in the Prime Minister um, post-Bush fires. We are seeing humble, empathetic Scott at the moment. And, and as you know, um, Australians like that type of politics. They like a more courteous, collaborative um, consensual type of politics. Um, and the Prime Minister is clearly responding to to those interests at the moment. What do you think about that, Maria? I mean, there's obviously a rally around the flag point is is, is pretty strong because it does seem to be showing up in, in many different countries facing this crisis. Um, do you think that, that uh, Brendan Murphy, the Chief Medical Officer's um, uh, high trust levels, also are consistent with that? that uh, phenomenon? Uh, yeah, I think um, we've seen that actually in, in many disasters. If we didn't see it with the bushfire crisis with uh, Shane Fitzgibbons, or Fain, Shane Fitzsibbons, my, my apologies, um, we see that in the United States um, with their chief medical officer. It is sort of interesting, I guess, around these like persistent questions we have about trust and expertise. It seems like doctors are one of the few experts that we continuously enjoy trusting and I suppose it's because it's linked to the existential uh, dimensions of uh, what health expertise can offer us in terms of our, our lives. What I actually do think is interesting around Scott Morrison and the government is that if we sort of look at some of the sort of decision-making processes that underlied uh, the whole kind of response to the pandemic, um, we can kind of sort of see a few kind of occasions where the government uh, was sort of um, saved from its perhaps own worst instincts by being pushed um, to the states, uh, by being pushed by the states. And it's been really, really refreshing, and I think Australians have really welcomed this, uh, to see governments cooperate to actually solve problems because Australians are quite enamoured um, towards looking towards government for solutions. If you look at our history that is generally typically how we relate to the to the state and for very good reasons. Uh, you know, we have a lot of natural disasters here, which is a giant type of market failure if you think about it that way. Um, and also, you know, Australia was literally at the end of the earth. Um, and so the role for the state was, was big and has always been um, very big here. I guess what I sort of wonder is the Prime Minister isn't necessarily known for his consensus-building politics, he is a more of a divide and rule kind of figure. He's really good at simplifying issues down and cutting through and giving you a really clean binary to pick between A and B. And I just sort of wonder, as um, we are about to really start engaging with a set of really quite complex problems, which are not just produced by the pandemic, but which the pandemic has, I guess, accelerated and made more acute whether or not the, I guess, cooperation and consultation skills that he has been practicing can actually be carried forward. And I do wonder whether or not they're capable of that, given some of the sort of early signals we've sort of seen around their attitude towards some IR regulations. Um, and I guess the way they've sort of framed some of their economic options. And Mark uh, Evans mentioned that, um, the bushfires were not a high point in Scott Morrison's leadership, uh, and where you know, whereas there's there's kind of a different atmosphere and and different approach being taken with this crisis. Obviously, it's a unique crisis in so many ways. But uh, do you think that uh, well, first, what's your impression of the way Scott Morrison has handled it, and do you think that to some extent it's a function of how badly he handled the bushfire crisis that and perhaps even some of the mistakes that he started making early on in his response to the covid crisis that he really uh, had a fairly um dramatic picture of what failure looked like it suddenly presented rather vividly in his mind and uh, and he and he and he sort of rose to the challenge is is that some a statement you'd agree with uh yeah i think he also recognized that um he actually didn't have all the levers that he couldn't actually control the situation and that the states would move without him, whether he liked it or not. Uh, so better to move in behind them and to 
create space for them to act rather than them essentially asserting that they were going to do that, which is sort of what happened with the school closure debate. If you look at that uh, in in detail there, um, you know, he's at risk of really losing that debate and being seen to lose that uh, debate with internally. Look, you know, Scott Morrison's uh, approval after the bushfire crisis was so low that I'm not surprised that we've seen it rebound so very strongly and i think as i said last week or the week before this uh, this crisis has really given him a chance to demonstrate that he's actually learned something and he is a very positive person like that's his framework that's his mental framework and so that that is a real strength for him to be able to sort of uh move to to potentially um you know rescue his government's fortunes but i guess what i would state is that all of the problems Australia had before this crisis are still there and we now have a whole bunch of new complex ones to add to the mix. And it's still not really clear to me that the government actually knows what it wants to do with government, particularly now that being a steady hand on the tiller is probably not enough. But the key twist in the tail, though, was the um, the use of the National Cabinet, uh, which at least in, in rhetoric... Um, has gone down extremely well with, with with Australian citizens. Now, the big question really is whether he will build upon that notion of collaborative problem solving that you articulated earlier in terms of um, crafting um, a post-COVID-19 consensus around recovery and, and ensuring basically that national interests and state and territory sh- interests stay aligned in what's going to be um, a long, long process of, of recovery. I'm also reminded as well, of course, um, of what happened with Anna Bly in Queensland around the floods. I mean, she was universally viewed to be um, a superb manager of, of, of crisis. Um, and yet, um, when the recovery process bit, she ended up losing the, the election to, to Campbell Newman. And that's a that's a very fresh memory for for many Australian politicians. So so the key thing to bear in mind is is really how um, Morrison's able to develop a much more inclusive approach to the recovery process. In crisis mode, you need to be seen to be collaborative, but you can be top down. In recovery mode, you need to be more inclusive. And you need to embrace a more participatory politics to to maintain social cohesion. Mark, I think that's a really good point that you've made there about that shift from crisis management and an acceptance of top-down uh, uh, regulatory and governance approach to then coming through to a more inclusive um, uh, approach and one that as Maria, you identified, is going to necessarily have to deal with a great many complex issues. And uh, Prime Minister Morrison doesn't have a good track record for that sort of inclusive approach. And that goes back to when he was, if we remember, I think it was Minister for Immigration um, and his reluctance to have uh, public um, you know, public briefings about what was happening in terms of managing our borders. Uh, he's not one naturally inclined to genuinely consult. Uh, and so coming out of this, it would actually make sense for him. Mark uh, Kenny, I think you were right about his capacity to learn uh, from past behaviour. I think uh, he may well see, and one has to hope that he will do so, see the benefits of continuing to have this form of collaborative working with the states and territories and across uh, across the line with the with the opposition as well. Um, the the division and the difficulty seems to me always to have stemmed to a very large extent in recent times, regrettably, from a very uh, pernicious approach from uh, Tony Abbott's perspective, his uh, advisor Peter Credlin in particular, uh, and there's been a particularly destructive aspect to their approach, which I think now being out of the picture for some time uh, enables Prime Minister Morrison to actually bring his colleagues forward and hopefully to have much more 
inclusive and collaborative approaches to these very challenging issues. That's a really interesting point, actually, because what you're saying there, Anne, is that there's kind of almost three forces happening. There's the the crisis itself. There's, I guess, the digital overlay of all of this, so how we're seeing uh, all kinds of things being done uh, and um, the prospects for transformation of the economy that, uh, that, that arise out of that. And as you say, there's there's perhaps a an important sort of turning point occurred in politics with the passing and history of, of, of Abbott and, and his ilk in the coalition. Now, many people will be quite sceptical about that because they'll say that figures like Morrison and, and to a greater extent even than that, probably Peter Dutton and a few others are, you know, were very much part of that, that old politics as well. But... Um, yeah, I'm keen to keen to get your thoughts. What do you think about that, Maria? Is 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 um is uh, is there potential for politics to be different because the Liberal Party has changed? You've written about the Liberal Party quite a bit. Um, okay, I think this is a fascinating question. So, if you think about it, if we take a step back and think about it like this, the um, politics for the last sort of decade has really been sort of structured around really simple binaries, right? Um, if if Labor is offering X, then we create difference between us and them by saying no. Negative gearing is a really good example of that. There was, if you recall, when when Turnbull first became Prime Minister, there was discussion about, you know, refer, uh, reforming uh, negative gearing, um, you know, Scott Morrison is on the record of, as saying that there are excesses in the system. But once Labor went down that path, you know, as a point of differentiation, as a way of campaigning, as a way of being really clear with the electorate, the Liberal Party basically sort of said no. And I just think that that kind of politics will not actually help the government to resolve really complex and systemic kind of policy problems, um, but it may help it win elections. Um, do I think that the Liberal Party has changed? No, I, I don't think it has. And I would sort of further say, well, why should it? It, You know, the Liberal Party has uh, a specific ideological kind of framework about how it understands the world and what it thinks is best for the nation, right? And we're already seeing exactly um, that uh, prescription being offered up to the Australian people when we hear the government talk about a really aggressive growth agenda. And when they say they're re-examining, you know, the tax mix, you know, um, about basically looking at ways to sort of stimulate the economy. I think though, what would be a much better conversation to have um, would be one to sort of to sort of think more systemically about where Australia is actually at um, and to look at the fact that the tax system we have is overly complex and irrational, right? Um, and so, in, perhaps instead of dusting off the Productivity Commission report from 2017 when Scott Morrison was treasurer, they might actually want to have a look at the Henry Tax Review, which was a systemic look at the tax system. And by making the tax system more rational, they could also achieve a lot more in terms of fairness as well. Because um, as uh, our guest last week kind of made the point, you know, the way we tax different classes of assets versus income versus savings is irrational and really distortionary and breeds a lot of unfairness in our system. I guess I'm not really sure that the coalition really wants to open up any of those cans of worms because they attack their base, the people that vote for them, the people who are the current beneficiaries um, of that. Um, and so I'm not sort of surprised that the Liberal Party is returning to the things that it believes and thinks work best for the country. And, you know, sometimes that is absolutely true. They do work best for the country. So, no, I don't think they'll change. Well, I guess we're going to have to wait and see a bit on that because uh, we're, we're at a pretty early stage where we're just sort of getting, I guess, rhetorical dances and um, and hints in terms of the things uh, ministers and the prime minister are saying. Uh, obviously, we, we haven't even seen the easing of social restrictions yet, and and there is this sort of nascent debate about economic reform. There's, this is a debate that's happening in all 
lots of different countries as well. It's quite interesting. I noticed that Giuseppe Conti, the um, the Prime Minister of Italy, which of course was a very badly and remains a very badly affected country by the coronavirus, uh, he's talking now about uh, easing some social restrictions. Um, you know, things like um, family family visits, uh, takeaway restaurants, uh, and and funerals and these sort of things. Uh, but he's also saying we have to use this moment to make some. Uh, some long overdue changes to the problems that have bedeviled the country for a long time. I mean, we might talk about uh, after the break about some of the things that uh, that might be on that list. Um, but Mark, do you think, uh, you know, in in contradistinction to what Marie is saying, that that uh, Scott Morrison has in fact had a look at, you know, he's been given the benefit of what voters think about, as you were saying before, about a more consultative, more collaborative, less conflictual style of politics. And it's reflected in his in his standing. I mean, he's now at 68% approval rating, uh, satisfaction rating, which is sort of Kevin Rudd territory back in 2008. That is very high. Now, you know, it's the advantage of incumbency, but but there's a there's a there's a lesson there for the Liberal Party, and it does have the potential to change. I'm not saying it will, but it does have the potential to change the way Scott Morrison views the business of being a national leader. Does it not? Yeah. Look, I think Maria's right in the sense that the the coalition will only change as a consequence of electoral despair, right? And we know that historically. You know, there are there are there are a coalition of survival. Um, and they will change if their electoral survival depends upon it. Post bushfires, there's no doubt that um, Morrison has embraced certain of the new politics uh, more than he was previously. You know, he he is his rhetoric is more collaborative, um, humble, and conciliatory than in the past. But the but the game changer is going to be economic crisis. Because I mean, if you if you just look at the the report, NAB's report um, today, there were a whole range of of really really worrying statistics that emerged then that that shows that you know this is going to be our global financial crisis. We were able to to um, evade the worst excesses of the the global financial crisis, partly because of the fiscal stimulus package but mostly because of the relationship of the Australian economy to the Chinese economy. We are going to enter a, a profound period of, of economic decline. So, so the, the key issue there is, is how Morrison responds to that, because we know that that's going to be a game chain, 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 um, changer. Now, so then the, the other question is, is where are the potential sources of a new politics that Maria refers to? Well, uh, unquestionably, given Albanese's ratings um, and recent speeches from the opposition front, front bench, they have definitely decided to make a play in this, in this space. But we're also seeing business elites becoming more concerned about Australia's democracy and being more vocal in their criticism of the government and the government's need to embrace change. Um, the upmarket media as well is adopting various aspects of, of democratic change. And then most significantly, we're seeing more citizens' initiatives emerging across Australia than, than ever before. So that combination of impending economic crisis, um, the radicalisation of business elites, and citizens' initiatives, and an opposition party that accepts that it needs to change in order to survive is potentially um, a window to a, to a genuine new politics and the renewal of Australian democracy over the next two years. Let's take a quick break there, and when we come back, I'd like to ask you, Mark, just to expand a bit on uh, what some of those uh, actual mechanisms could be for enhancing and rejuving, rejuvenating our democracy. Take a quick break and back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, I know, Maria, you're interested in responding to what Mark just said about where the Liberal Party uh, is at and where the government is at. So, uh, why you go? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I really do agree with what Mark has sort of said. And, and another way of sort of pithily uh, summarising it is for change to happen, typically things have to get really bad for populations to really want to wear change. I mean, I think, you know, we've had a, a long-running conversation in this country basically highlighting the fact that the current policy consensus isn't really working, right? It's not working for enough Australians. It's not working in the way they they think that their society ought to be in and a society that is structured in a way that they think that they will thrive, right? But what has, what has been missing, though, is um, either a consensus around the direction to go, and we really see that particularly around, say, climate policy and how that is now increasingly enmeshed with economic arguments, um, and we also sort of see this in uh, the fact that, yeah, we are not actually, we're often talking around the the problems that we have. We're not very good at being honest about um, what it is that is actually wrong in our economy. I mentioned the tax system before, you know, we, we sort of think about it in the lens of housing or how we tax certain classes of savings, right? When the actual problem is that the tax system isn't, um, terribly coherent and where we've got all of these sort of ex- exemptions, right, all over the place, you know. And uh, it's impossible to take those exemptions away. Politically, there just doesn't seem to be the will to do it. Yeah, precisely, precisely, because things haven't gotten bad enough for enough people to sort of say that the stake I have in the status quo is not uh, worth enough anymore because um, I actually don't think it can kind of continue to go mm. on like this. Like, you know, this is what we sort of see when we we see policy paradigms kind of collapse. And, you know, wages growth is another really good example of this, right? Like, you know, there really hasn't been an honest conversation by politicians about the fact that one of the reasons why wages growth prior to this was so low was because the mining boom, the once in a century mining boom was so huge that it inflated all of our wages without an appropriate increase in productivity. And so it's not surprising that politicians are struggling to find solutions to problems that they can cannot really even name and you know as mark has sort of sort of said that we are probably in for some really bad economic times um civil society is really really restless right and has been for a while like it's not like we haven't really seen this kind of activity since the 60s and 70s right um and so these are really tricky politics for any government of any stripe to manage um and the the conflicts within the coalition remain where they were before this crisis happened right it could be the case i'm not i'm not uh, in the uh, in these rooms it could be the case that you know this crisis has been a kind of wake up call to the political class and perhaps they will turn a new leaf and stop treating everything like a game but i i guess i am cynical and am not convinced that now that really difficult economic decisions have to be made which will recast the way we live in our country won't uh you know won't really be around building a consensus um but will be about securing uh one ideological vision over another I think that's an interesting point that you make there, Marie. I'd be interested to hear a little further from you and and both Mark, both Marks, uh, on this question because uh, my understanding is that uh, when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, he was particularly, it seems, 
seemed to be particularly constrained by not wanting to upset or disrupt the right of, of the party, of the coalition, but the Liberal Party in particular. And as a consequence, again, my understanding from readings and generally um, uh, listening to what's going on and happening was that um, he, uh, as a consequence, those who've, who really supported him in the wider community felt somehow um, a little, not exactly perhaps let down, but that they still weren't seeing the person they thought was really there going to prosecute these um, policy positions um, that were so near to their hearts, most particularly being the climate one. Um, now, he's he's gone, as we commented a little earlier, that very hard, um, divisive approach adopted by by Tony Abbott and so on is also gone. And because of the state of flux, there is an opportunity, a window here, I would have thought, for Prime Minister Morrison and his coterie to actually somehow try and uh, bring everybody a little closer to the centre, a little closer to this this sort of more balanced approach. But I'd be very interested in your views on whether the internal uh, tensions and almost schisms within both the Liberal Party itself and also the coalition um, will continue to be something of a a sticking point or a roadblock for um, these bigger policy uh, decisions and engagement that they're all going to have to wrestle with. Yeah, well, I'll just have a, a quick crack at that, um, if I can, Anne, because I think um, what you say is uh, is right about the you know some of the sort of personality changes inside the Liberal Party and the way that may have changed the government. And I do think there is an opportunity here for Scott Morrison to reframe what is possible from his government. You know, I'm, I'm minded of that, that, that wise saying only Nixon could go to China. I think, uh, it, it's relevant here because it's pretty clear that a moderate was given very strict uh, ambit by the party, that being Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, you know, the, the, he was given a very limited permission to be a govern, government leader. Morrison, on the other hand, comes from the middle of the party, even from the middle right of the party, and um, is seen as very much more, you know, a, a pure Liberal Party person. He's a party operative and everything else. I think he has more license, therefore, to do this and going to what Mark Evans was saying before and which with which I agree I think it's possible that uh, you know he he will he will be able to make this journey and that he will be given some permission by by uh, by his party to do it now whether he's actually going to do that or not is another question and I've been wrong on this before uh, when I've seen these kind of gestures these unifying rhetorics that have appeared uh, from from prime ministers in the past only to find out that they're just really cynical tactical ploys rather than anything particularly deep or strategic um, but nonetheless, I think Scott Morrison is at a very, and his government is at a very interesting historical moment, very, very much a new thing. And it's possible that he might decide that the future of, you know, the, 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 the place he can occupy in history is as a prime minister that was not highly fancied, not expected to win, not particularly well known, but has risen to a crisis and has then come out of that as a broader, more unifying figure. This sounds florid and optimistic. I'm fully prepared to accept that criticism. I'm just saying it's within the range of possibilities for him to do that. Well, again, Mark, a lot of the countries um, in Europe in response to the global financial crisis um, adopt um, a cross-partisan approach to, to dealing with the crisis, which allowed them to, to quell um, internal party sense. Um, so again, here I think that uh, the economic crisis is potentially a game changer here, um, because if they take a cross-partisan approach, it would be much more difficult um, for the National Party to destabilise um, a, a proper sort of post-COVID consensus. I mean, I guess for me, it's just not clear what they really do want to do. Um, and I think that's actually a criticism of this government for some 
time that, you know, this is a government that has really sort of struggled to come to a consensus about what it is that they want to do with... Well, they didn't want to do anything initially. They just wanted to deliver a big swag of very generous tax cuts, deliver jobs and growth and surplus budgets. Well, that's all been thrown out the window. I mean, the tax cuts are legislated, but there's not really much beyond of that old agenda, thin though it was, that, that's even relevant at the moment. We're looking, we're staring down the, the barrel of, um, you know, structural deficits off into, over the horizon. Um, uh, low growth, if any, at, at, at any point. Um, uh, and, um, you know, really deep structural and political problems for, and social problems for a government. So, you know, maybe maybe the agenda is going to make the government rather than the government making the agenda. Um, I just wonder whether, because of the the seriousness of this real crisis, not only within Australia but globally, it's almost as if this is this is finally something now for all of, all politicians to actually get their teeth into, if I can put it in those terms. In other words, until now, you know, the economy was seemed to be travelling quite well. Yes, there was no real wages growth, and there were all of the issues that you flagged a little earlier, Maria. But uh, it, in terms of policy settings, there was there was not the aptitude for engaging with the um, climate issue until the bushfires happened. And it seemed to me, at least, that sort of just after the bushfires and just before COVID, there, it was almost as if we, both here in Australia and also globally, were on the brink of some real breakthroughs on the question of climate change and genuine climate policy and energy policy. And then COVID-19 came along. And for the reasons that you've flagged, Mark Kenny, but also uh, Maria and Mark Evans as well, uh, there are very, very real difficult problems. And Mark Evans, as you just said, uh, parties coming together and in a sense closing rank and focusing on what the real issue is, confronting them to help make the societies they're governing better places. It, it could be, it could indeed be, Mark Kenny, that you're uh, particular little vision of, uh, well, not so little, your amazing vision of um, the way forward might actually be realised. Amazing vision. I really like that. <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> I think you've sort of hit the nail on the, the head there and, you know, the, what both political parties think the real issue is in the wake of the once we sort of fully understand the economic crisis that is a, that we are living through and we will confront, you know, and I guess that's sort of, I mean, I just haven't really, haven't seen, I've seen signals from the coalition that sort of suggest that they understand it one way and Labor understands it a different way. And so it's not that I don't think that the Prime Minister doesn't have an appetite for collaboration. I guess how those parties choose to define what the real issue is, you know, the size of the debt, how do we repay it, leaning in towards more, you know, austerity measures. Um, perhaps it's about freeing up the economy, more de- deregulatory and more sort of libertarian-style society, right? There are two potential options on the right. We already kind of have a good idea about what Labor wants. They want a, a bigger state. They want a, a flattening of inequality. Like, they're they're not they're not necessarily very compatible agendas. And this is a really big crisis. It's a really golden opportunity. And so I guess that's sort of what I mean. Like reform doesn't happen without conflict. Consensuses are usually only crafted out of exhaustion. And I guess that's I guess that's why I'm pessimistic about the long-term success of the National Cabinet um, because I don't think we have a consensus about what the Australian settlement, to use that lofty phrase, is supposed to look like in the 21st century. I think that's something we are still furiously arguing over. Well, I guess that's the challenge, isn't it? And that's not just a challenge for government and opposition. It's a challenge for all of us, uh, because what is important is that we, we pressure government into taking that question seriously. Um, so that we can have a, a national conversation around how we imagine an inclusive process of recovery and renewal. So, so for me, what you've you struck on there is is the fundamental question that that, that we need to address. 
Well, Mark, I'm really interested in that because um, the you know you talk about a national conversation and those those sorts of uh, phrases are, are used quite freely. But what sort of in in practice, what kind of actual devices would you envisage, or would you like to see Australia look at doing, which would facilitate that that national conversation as a real thing rather than just a sort of a rhetorical ideal? Um, well, I think we've already seen sort of two clues emerging, um, two potential instruments of change e- emerging in the, the post, uh, in the in the COVID-19 response already. Um, look, I, I, I agree with Maria that we can be cynical about the National Cabinet. However, it could be an interesting building block for the development of a National Recovery Plan. But it does mean that the agenda cannot be dominated by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister needs to be first amongst equals. Um, In my view, that instrument could be reformed to develop a much more inclusive and collaborative approach to to policymaking. The problem at the moment is that the Prime Minister sets the agenda, the the Prime Minister decides what is in the national interest, um, and depending on the relative bargaining power of the states, the states respond in, in, in different ways. So so we so for me we have to conceive of the national cabinet as an inclusive instrument of collaborative problem solving, which means changing the rules of the game in terms of how that operates. The the second potential area is is digital technology. I think most of us, you know, even academics such as myself, have been surprised at how much deliberation we can we can do online i mean i was i've always been very cynical about um digital democracy and actually if you look at a lot of the evidence around the world there aren't that many um glowing exemplars of it of it working particularly well in practice i'm now of the view that actually digital democracy can work it's basically all about the design and rules of engagement that you that you that you put around it. So I, I've actually become a convert to the digital democracy um, over the last month. So look, in my view, I think um, we should make the creation of a post-COVID nineteen consensus the task of the national cabinet, um, in which the interests of Australian citizens in every state and territory are weaved into a national recovery plan. I think we could very easily underpin this decision process with digital deliberative assemblies in every state and territory with that sort of twin task of formulating priorities for recovery plan. And also, because you've you've always got to make um, use of a good crisis, addressing the cracks in our democracy and federation that have emerged really over the last um, 10 years or so. Um, In addition, Given the historical claim of rights of Australia's first peoples, I think special representation should be accorded to Indigenous nations in each state and territory um, assembly. Now, there are lots of examples around the world where adopting this process has been very successful. So, for example, the Irish Constitutional Convention was a remarkable success um, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, where where the, the, the parliament was basically unable to make any progress on, on, on major social rights issues, um, including um, the issue of abortion. And through the creation of, of a citizens' assembly that was basically made up of um, two-thirds lay people chosen from, uh, by random from the electoral roll and one-third politician they were able to generate a whole range of recommendations for constitutional change that were ultimately adopted by the Irish Parliament um, and became law. Roughly about 40% of their recommendations became law. And you had a quiet revolution in the nature of the Irish Constitution over a two to three year period that has now become embedded in the, fa- in the fabric of, of the new politics in, in Ireland. Um, I then think that basically when you generated... Um, a range of um, propositions and priorities um, from every state and territory. These ideas would then be forwarded to um, a national assembly with the same 
make up, then deliberate on the proposals, and then forward their recommendations to, to Parliament. I think at the, the same time, we could use MyGov um, to have to conduct online citizen polls on recovery priorities identified by the deliberative forum. So I think you can have a mixture of deliberative engagement, public engagement with representative assemblies, recognising the historical claim of right of, of Indigenous Australians with deliberative polls that allow us to identify recovery um, priorities. So what I'm basically talking about here is how we can use participatory democracy. And actually, in Australia, we have the world's best deliberative designers on tap, both at the ANU, Griffith University, um, the University of Melbourne, um, the Centre for Deliberative Democracy that's based at the University of Canberra. We have world's best designers to enable this process. And it's all about bolstering the legitimacy of our representative system of government. It's not about getting rid of politicians. It's about supporting politicians to make better decisions. And that way we can forge a post-COVID-19 settlement that all Australians can subscribe to. So in a sense, that's, that's one way of trying to um, imagine what, how we can forge um, a post-COVID-19 consensus. Um, and can I just bring you in finally, uh, because we're running very uh, low on time, but I just wanted to, to touch on, on, on Europe for a moment. Obviously, Europe's been very strongly, badly hit by this corona crisis, uh, particularly Italy, Spain, France, and, and some other areas as well. Has this had any effect on European unity? At one stage, the EU was apologising to Italy for not having responded and lent enough assistance early on in the process. Of course, uh, Britain's out, but Britain's a, a, a you know a savage victim of this as well. So, just wondering if you've got any reflections about the way this has played out in Europe. Absolutely, the um, President von der Leyen's uh, apology to Italy was. Yes, on behalf and appropriate that as the president of the EU Commission, she might make this gesture. But we must always remember that the EU is its member states. I cannot repeat this often enough. And so it, in apologising to Italy, it's almost as if all members of the family are apologising to one member who, for whatever reason, either feels that they've been let down, have been let down, or uh, are in need of hearing this. So uh, the the gesture was an appropriate signal to my mind, in fact, of EU unity. To your broader question about the impact, look, um, it's a very it's a very real challenge. But the EU twenty seven uh, are working together, pulling together as they necessarily must. Uh, there are very real challenges around the lockdown rules, not only there, of course, but for example, this morning in the Canberra Times. Um, Professor Ju Chong Tam, who is in the Melbourne Law School and a board member of the Centre for Public Integrity, was writing about the need to rein in the COVID-19 ministerial powers here in Australia. There are similar debates going on in the EU, in particular with what Poland and Hungary are doing under the auspices of the COVID-19 response. But more broadly, we're seeing protests in Germany about the infractions on the fundamental freedoms. Um, these are, are questions that are rightly being raised and debated. But um, importantly, it seems that uh, while there is the challenge, there is also the recognition that working together, uh, the whole EU27 can uh, come through this in a better framework than if they were to fragment and split apart. That said, the very real challenges of navigating both the internal political questions as well as the broader uh, global questions is a test for this structure as it is for any any uh, organisational structure uh, across the globe at the minute. The European Central Bank has made it clear that it will do whatever it takes to protect the euro, but is there any possibility that some of these very badly hit states, Italy in particular, could uh, start looking to withdraw from the euro, looking to be able to control their own currency and thus have some sort of uh, better control over their management out of the downturn? Look, um, I'm not a financial markets expert or specialist on this, so there are others who will have views. But what I can say in looking at debates around this is that the euro is, prim in fact, primarily a political project. 
uh, Ken Henry, a good number of years ago, perhaps even 10 years ago, made the comment once in a forum at ANU that the euro was not uh, economically, uh, I think, logical or, or rational. And it's uh, that's true, but it's not intended to be that. It's intended to be largely symbolic, but also as a currency by and large, notwithstanding its its flaws, has actually been successful in being something other than just, uh, for example, you know, the currency such as we saw in Zimbabwe. Um the likelihood of any of the countries, there will be debates, there will be definitely internal discussions around this, but I would be very surprised if any of the countries voluntarily left the euro. I suspect it would be just structurally too difficult to resurrect their own currency, to re-enter a, the global financial markets with their own currency while still within the EU. There are special um, accommodations within the EU treaty systems for the UK prior to its departure, of course, but also um, uh, uh, Denmark and uh, Sweden for memory, there are uh, going to be greater challenges to work that through. And I simply think that there are more pressing questions that these states are going to be having to deal with. Now, whether the other member states uh, would like one or other of these countries not to be part of the euro is a separate question. But the likelihood of anyone, including Italy, leaving, I think is extremely remote. I think we'll have to wrap up there, but there's been so much food for thought in this discussion about democracy, about Europe, about uh, the, the character of the Morrison government and the, the opportunities that it has. We haven't really got to some of the uh, economic reforms in detail that uh, could be pushed uh, by either side, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to do that in a subsequent podcast. But can I thank uh, Maria Teflaga, Mark Evans and Anne McNaughton for being with us today on on Democracy Sausage. And can I thank you also for listening to uh, to the podcast. Um, as you know, you can get to us on Twitter at uh, APPS uh, Policy Forum. That's at Apps Policy Forum. And the, uh, the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. So until next week, uh, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage and bye for now. Bye. 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 Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.